Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. We are not covering chapter 37 as a whole unit, but simply some select verses from it tonight, and I'll tell you why as we go through it. But let's just pause for a moment and thank the Lord for His goodness to us individually. Father, You've been so good to us and our families this week. Some of those blessings, Lord, some of those gifts are yet unseen by us. They have been covered up. They have been couched in pain and suffering for some. But a gift nonetheless. I think back to Paul the Apostle who talked about his thorn in the flesh as a gift. When he said, a thorn was given to me. And so Lord, what you allow or what you prescribe for us is indeed the very best thing for us. But Father, you're faithful. You're good. And you brought us back, Lord, to the very beginning foundations, the cross, the shed blood, the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. You told us to do often this enactment. And when we do it often to remember you, remember who you are, Remember what you have done for us and what you are doing now in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of our pastors on staff, Ken Riley, was visiting his dad in Las Vegas this week, and he sent me a picture of his dad sitting on an old Harley Davidson. I showed it to my wife and my son because they had to do a double take. When they saw Kenny's dad, it looked Well, in the small picture, it looked just like Kenny because it was the same cut of features and face and style of hair, but of course, older than Kenny. I'm not saying Kenny looks as old as his dad, but I I knew I was looking at at Ken Riley 30 years from now. (laughs) He just resembles so much his pops. Now, this week I was with my son out at a golf course just shooting a bucket of balls, and somebody next to me on that driving range said to me, Todd? Todd, is that you? Well, and it wasn't Todd. It was me. So I looked up and I said, no, I'm sorry, I'm not Todd. He goes, oh, you look like Todd, whoever Todd is was or is. But you've all had that happen where somebody said, you look like or you remind me of someone, somebody else, or I mistook you for somebody else. That is the impression we get as we move into chapter 37 all the way through chapter 50 as we're reading the story of Joseph. He reminds us of somebody else. And and it's not Abraham, and it's not Isaac, and it's not his dad, Jacob. When we read about Joseph, he reminds us of Jesus. Very, very similar to Christ, as I'll point out a few of those things in just a moment. 
In chapter 37, we are moving into the final division of the book of Genesis. The next 14 chapters, including this one, is that final division and the central focus of attention is on one person and that one person is Joseph. It's quite remarkable that 14 chapters of the first book of the Bible are devoted to one single unique personality. Think about it this way. There's more space devoted to Joseph than there is to Abraham, than there is to Jacob, than there is to Isaac or any other person that we find. Fourteen chapters. If you were to compare these 14 chapters with the first 11 chapters, and if you remember Genesis 1 through 11, they're significant chapters. They're chapters of origin, we would call them. The story of creation, story of the fall of man, the stories of Noah and his family, story of the great worldwide flood, the post-Diluvian era, the table of nations in chapter 10, the Tower of Babel, in chapter 11. All of those incredible stories put together don't even match the real estate given to one single person. Now, what is Joseph like? In a word, I'll give you one word, he's different. I know the saying, like father, like son, but in this case, it doesn't work. Because as you look at Joseph, he is almost flawless. Did you know there's not one bad, evil, malicious, wrong thing said of Joseph in all of the Bible? As a human being, he's nearly flawless. He's different from his dad. He is what the Bible would call pure in heart. Not like dad who was manipulative and conniving of heart. Joseph was pure of heart. Many commentators, researchers, and looking at the life of Joseph have come up with many ways in which Joseph is like Jesus. Some have counted over a hundred different ways. Time prevents us from doing that tonight. Others have counted 50. Time prevents us from doing that tonight. But I want to show you a few ways in which Jesus Christ in chapter 37 and out of chapter 37, is like Christ. Now, we have been for 27 weeks going through the book of Genesis. 27 weeks. This is, I think, week 28 or something like that. And we have gone in depth. This is not the Bible from 30,000 feet. This is the Bible from three feet. We're driving through Genesis and taking frequent stops and side trips to see what's down the alleys. But now that we come to chapter 37, and now that it is communion night, and we like to do this once a month, I thought it was more appropriate to give you more of a devotional and a summary of Joseph's life rather than a verse-by-verse through the entire chapter, chapter 37, so that next time we can go through it in our normal way and from a different angle. Well, let me give you a few ways in which Joseph looks a lot like Jesus. Number one, Joseph was uniquely loved by his father. That's the first thing we learn about him when his story unfolds 
in chapter 37, Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a tunic of many colors. So the first thing we're told about the relationship between dad and son is the unique love that his father had for his son. He made him a tunic. A tunic of many colors was thought to be a coat or a distinguishing piece of garment that honored him or gave him authority. When Jesus first arrives on the scene at the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist, a voice comes from heaven, from the Father. Remember what it said? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And if indeed this tunic was a symbol of authority, well, again, that reminds us of Jesus, who in Matthew 28 said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Some, and I'm not quite sure I didn't do enough digging in the sources, but some believe that the translation of this tunic of many colors could be best rendered seamless rather than variegated or many colors. Seamless. And when I read that, I thought exactly of what John said when Jesus was crucified and they were auctioning off or throwing dice, gambling for his robe, his tunic, which was called a robe without seams sewn from top to bottom in one piece. At any rate, that's the first mark. Joseph was uniquely loved by his father. Here's the second way Joseph looks like Jesus. Joseph was maliciously hated by his brothers. That follows with this unique love. In chapter 37, again, verse 4, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. He was hated. And the hatred grows through the chapter until the inevitable happens as he is sold into slavery and a lie goes back to his dad about how he was killed out in the field. Well, that also is a lot like Jesus. He was hated. He came into his own. His own did not receive him. The Bible says when Jesus would speak that the common people heard him gladly. They loved hearing him. He made sense to them. He was so different than the normal religious leaders who spoke in sanctuary tones and very condemning manner. Jesus was a breath of fresh air. Because they saw that the common people were hearing Jesus gladly, that fomented a sort of envy and jealousy from the religious leaders toward Jesus. And that grew and that grew and that grew until... 
When Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin at his trial, they have to bring in false witnesses to make up things about him, lies about him. And when Barabbas was offered to the crowd so that Jesus could be let go, they said about Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. He was hated. So uniquely loved by his father, Joseph was, maliciously hated by his brother. Number three, he was unjustly sold for 20 pieces of silver. Joseph was. If you go over to verse 28, chapter 37. Oh, we'll begin a few verses back, verse 26. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, like, like they're being nice. And his brothers listened. Then the Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Jesus was on the earth, there were lots of people around him. As his ministry of three and a half years went on and on. He was very controversial. But nonetheless, he commanded great crowds of people who were very interested in him, as we have seen on Sunday morning in John chapter 6, because of his miracles. But though he was surrounded by lots of people, the closest to him were his disciples. Just like for Joseph, the closest to him were his own brothers. Now, there were 12 of these boys. 13 if you count Benjamin. So imagine having 12 brothers around you. Jesus had 12 of his brothers, his disciples around him. Those closest to him many times didn't understand. And one of those who were closest to him, Judas, sold Jesus into the hands of the Romans for 30 pieces of silver. It's very similar. This is 20 shekels. With Jesus, it says 30 pieces. Uniquely loved by his father, hated by his brothers, sold for 20 pieces of silver. Number four, he was accused, falsely accused, for crimes he did not commit. Joseph didn't do what he was accused of. As we go on later on in our story, chapter 39, he's taken to Egypt. He's in Potiphar's house. I'm fast-forwarding the story. He becomes one of the servants of Mr. Potiphar, one of the princes of Egypt. He's away at the office almost every day. His wife, Mrs. Potiphar, was a very lonely, desperate housewife. (laughs) Joseph was a young, handsome, single man. And you know the story already, how Mrs. Potiphar came on to Joseph Come on, Joey, baby, nobody's looking. You and I, man, come on. And you may remember that Joseph said, with integrity, look, nobody physically, humanly might be looking, but God is looking. How could I do this wickedness and sin against God? 
At that point, she screams, she cries out, and she accuses Joseph of being a rapist. A false accusation. Which lands him a stay in the Egyptian prison. Very similar to Jesus. Falsely accused. For crimes he did not commit. And once again, as I mentioned, before the Sanhedrin, they had to come up with false witnesses to bring in false accusations. And you know what they said about him? They said, this man perverts the nation. They said that about Jesus. This man perverts the nation and forbids people to pay taxes to Caesar. They said that because Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but render unto God the things that are God's. False accusations. Number four, accuse falsely. Number five, Joseph was providentially placed next to two other criminals. Chapter 40, when he's put in prison, it says that there were two other men, a chief butler of Egypt and the chief baker, who were placed in the same cell next to Joseph, two criminals next to Joseph during his confinement. Now that rings a bell. That brings us to the cross, where as Isaiah predicted and as the Gospels declare, Jesus was crucified between two criminals. One on the right, the Bible says, and one on the left, Luke chapter 23. It's also interesting that when Joseph was in prison... One of those other prisoners was set free and exalted, and the other one was killed. I find that fascinating because the two that were next to Jesus, one on the right and one on the left, one mocked Jesus, blasphemed Jesus, and died in his sin, eternally separated from God. The other humbly cried out, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Spiritually, one died. Spiritually, one lived. There's a sixth way in which Joseph looks like Jesus. Joseph was seemingly dead to his father before he appears alive Sometime later, in chapter 37, if you go down to verse 32, it says they sent the tunic. Now, they took Joseph's favored status clothing, dipped it in animal's blood, said it was Joseph's blood. And they brought it to their father and they said, we found this, liars. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? Leading question. And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn in pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. For years, his father thought he was dead. Until chapter 45, When the boys come back from Egypt needing to get grain, Joseph reveals himself to them and he goes, go tell my father I'm alive. 
Well, they have to because they won't be able to get their son, Benjamin, back unless they do it. So they come clean with dad and they say, your son, Joseph, lives. The Bible says when Jacob heard that, his heart stood still. It's like, (gasps) he couldn't believe it. That which was dead is now alive. How could that possibly be? And it was uncovered how it could be. But Joseph was dead to his father for a period of time and then revealed to be alive. As Jesus died on the cross, was buried, rose from the dead. Peter in Acts chapter 3 says to the people gathered in Jerusalem, you killed the prince of life, but God raised him up from the dead. The seventh way in which Joseph is like Jesus or looks like Jesus is that Joseph rightfully was in charge of everything. As the story in Genesis unfolds, he becomes the prime minister of Egypt and he's in charge of everything. He pulls the strings. Effectively, he works in proxy for the king of Egypt himself. He rightfully is in charge of everything. Now, there's a hint of this. If you go back to chapter 37 toward the beginning, in verse 5, it says, Joseph had a dream. And again, we'll cover this more in depth later. And he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream, which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose also and stood upright. Indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. Of course, they wouldn't like to hear that dream. But that was prophetic of what would happen. He would become in charge effectively, rightfully. He became in charge of everything and everyone. If anybody in Egypt wanted to eat food or get grain, the one who was in charge of doling out the percentage of grain was Joseph. in charge of everything. Jesus said the Father has committed everything into the hands of the Son. Jesus is rightfully in charge of everyone and everything as well. And, as we have been studying, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Joseph looks a lot like Jesus. Number eight, and finally I'll close with number eight, since it tends to be the number of new beginnings and it's probably enough time said and spent, is that with Joseph, everyone humbly bowed down to him. Everyone humbly bowed down to Joseph. As the story goes on in chapter 37 of these dreams that he tells his brothers, In verse 9, it says, he dreamed still another dream and he told it to his brothers. Now, you'd think he'd get a clue by this time. And he said, look, I've dreamed another dream. And this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Not just your sheaves, but 12 plus 2. Now watch, his father gets the point and will interpret the dream. So he told it to his father. 
and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? Well, that's exactly what happened. In chapter 42, and here's the text, it says, Joseph's brothers, when they saw the prime minister of Egypt, not knowing it was Joseph, bowed down to the ground with their face to the ground before Joseph. In chapter 47 and 48, when Jacob sees him, he bows down his face down to the ground. Same language. So your brothers and I bow down? Uh Uh-huh. All y'all are going to bow down. (laughs) That's why I say Joseph looks a lot like Jesus. Philippians 2.10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Joseph looks a lot like Jesus. Now, why are we going through this and why do we actually discover this? I've only covered eight of the very many ways in which Joseph looks a lot like Jesus. Simply to show you what you find a lot in the scripture, and that is the evidence of the fingerprint, so to speak, of the Holy Spirit in the Holy Writ, in the scripture itself, in the superintending of the writing of the text so that we have the very words of God given to us. The whole Bible is filled with Jesus. The whole Bible. That's why we study the Old Testament. I've been asked, why do you study the Old Testament and the New Testament? Why don't you just study the New Testament? Well, because Jesus said to those religious leaders of his day, search the scriptures. For in them you think that you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. But even Genesis, even Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the Torah, the works of Moses? Oh, yes. Because, you see, after Jesus rose from the dead and he was walking along the Emmaus Road and there were those two disciples who were despondent, and they said, man, we can't believe what's happened. This Jesus guy whom we believed died and he spoke something about a resurrection. I don't really know what that's about. And Jesus said, oh, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered and entered into his glory? Now listen to this. It says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He went back to Genesis He took the writings of Moses and the prophets and he showed how one typifies him and another predicts him and this one was symbolic of him. Wouldn't you have loved to be in on that Bible study? If ever there was a time I wish somebody would have recorded that or put it on CD or tape or even reel-to-reel. It was that prophetic Bible study post-resurrection of Christ and those on the way to Emmaus. Joseph looks a lot like Jesus. Here's the follow-up question. How much do you look like Jesus? Is there a family resemblance? Can people tell that you're a child of God? All my son's life, he's heard, you look like your dad. 
But if somebody could say, you know what, I see enough of God in you that you remind me of the Heavenly Father or you remind me of Jesus. What a compliment. How much do we look like him? How much of Jesus' values do we share? I think one of the things that tethers us to those values is what we're doing tonight and what we do once a month. Taking the Lord's Supper. It's the foundation. It's the rudimentary foundation of our faith. His broken body, his shed blood, did it all. One of the things that Jesus said about himself is, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. But he said something else. He said, you are the light of the world. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But he said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. How much do you reflect his light? When you have a full moon, you get a good idea of how bright the sun shines on the moon and reflects. That's just a reflection. It's not the moon's light. The moon just reflects the sunlight and comes down to us quarter million miles away at 186,000 miles per second. You're seeing the glory of the sun reflected in the moon. Can people see the glory of the risen Christ reflected in us? Now, um, at the uh, communion table, you notice something um, burning with wax dripping all over it. (laughs) It's something special, and I wanted to display it tonight. It's a menorah. It uh, was purchased, I bought it in Jerusalem from an antiquities dealer in Jerusalem. I actually saw it two years ago and I said, well, I'll think about it. And I gave him a business card and he taped it to it. And when I was in his store a couple months back, two years after that time, my card was still attached to that menorah. So I thought, okay, I should just pick it up and (laughs) not dawdle anymore. So... I purchased it. But it's a special menorah for a couple of reasons. Number one is the shape. The shape of this menorah is probably almost exactly what the shape of the menorah in the temple was like that was destroyed in 70 AD. Much smaller scale. And of course, this being uh, brass as opposed to gold, but... The same shape. And the reason I say that is because the only known accurate relief or depiction we have of the menorah of the temple at Jesus' time is found in Rome on a relief of what's called the Arch of Titus, a triumphal arch after Titus sacked Jerusalem and brought back some of the remnants of the temple. And shown on there are they are they are carrying with them the menorah and its shape with the three steps and the um, dimensions are identical to this one. It is a symbol of the modern state of Israel, but it was a symbol in the tabernacle and in the temple of the presence of God. There was only one source of light in the tabernacle and the temple, and that was the menorah. And no doubt their minds went to that when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. They would have thought of the light in the most holy place. But also it's special because it's an antique menorah. This wasn't made just within a couple of years. This was made uh, over a hundred or 
200 years ago. It's, it's from a synagogue in a very special Galilean town called Tzfat. Tzfat. Or transliterated into English, Safed. Safed. Now, besides having a lot of other interesting things attached to that, Safed was the city at the time of Jesus that could be seen from anywhere around the ring of the shores of Galilee and on the lake because it was a city set upon a hill. And Jesus pointed to that city and said, A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but they put it up to give light to all that are in the house. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. There were no other cities that were set upon a hill and that still are in that Galilean region like Tzfat, that ancient town. So Jesus was probably referring to that town and that is where the menorah came from. And when I found out its history, I thought, that's so significant. It's such a great living illustration of what the Lord wants us to be. Reflectors of his glory, of his light. Wherever we go, wherever we work, whatever family system you're in, Whatever store you shop in, whatever school you go to, whatever neighborhood you live in, turn on the light from time to time. Let people know the glory of the living Christ. As we pray, I'm going to ask the communion board to come forward. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful. We're grateful for the salvation that comes by grace through faith. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's remedy at Christ's expense. Grace, unmerited favor. Grace, undeserved goodness to the very worst of sinners by the very best being in the universe. We thank you for salvation, that it's by grace. It's not by our works. It's not by our feeling. It's not by doing wonderful deeds. It's by your grace. And Paul said it's in this grace that we stand. And it's a very confident stand because it is by your work. It will never wane. It will never diminish. It remains constant. Lord, I pray that we will respond to your grace. And our response would be a wholehearted commitment to seeing the life of Christ so transform us that when people see us, they would say, you remind me a lot of Jesus. You remind me a lot of God. You must be a part of that family. You must be one of his kids. Lord, do a deep work in us. Whereas Jesus, the light of the world, shines in us, that we would simply reflect it. We don't have to come up with any source of our own. We don't have to come up or manufacture any greatness or goodness. Just let your light shine through us. Help us to do that. Lord, as we take these elements... We're also reminded that it goes far before the New Testament. 
as Jesus himself was fulfilling the law and the prophets. That's what he said he came to do, not to destroy, but to fulfill. And on that night, that Passover night, that Pesach evening, when the lamb was slain, typifying Christ who would be slain, As the disciples gathered together, Jesus gave a whole new meaning to sacrifice, to atonement, and to love. Lord, we thank you that we have seen in Joseph a prefiguring of Christ. May that also be true of us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to pass the elements out. To everyone, as we sing, we're going to worship, fill this place with song. We're going to pass the bread and the juice out to everyone here. I don't know your spiritual state. Now, I want you to listen carefully. It doesn't matter tonight if you're a weak Christian or a strong Christian. It doesn't matter tonight if you're a victorious Christian or a failing Christian. What matters is if you're a Christian. And if you're a Christian, you're in Christ. You're in Christ Jesus. And the Bible says we're not to take the elements of the Lord's Supper unworthily. That is, in an unworthy manner. In a manner that is unworthy of the very one we celebrate and the work that he has done. So we're not to take it frivolously we're not to take it mockingly we're not to take it ceremonially we're to take it devoutly and sincerely honestly and truthfully it does not mean that if you had a bad week if you struggled with something and you fell that i'm not worthy i don't feel worthy that i better not take communion that's not what the bible says in fact that would be wrong in your thinking and in your practice. If you're a Christian tonight, if you've received Christ as your Savior, you take these elements with the conviction that as a child of God, you can come into His throne boldly and receive grace to help in time of need, anytime. If you're not a Christian... What do I mean? If you have never personally, authentically, by faith, made Jesus Christ your Savior, your Lord. If you've just said, well, I've got a church and I sort of have this belief, but I've never really, I haven't like been born again or anything, or I haven't like gone like overboard. And then you should just let the elements pass you by and don't take them. Or you should go overboard in, in, in your supposed words. You should wholeheartedly receive the Savior. If tonight, right, even right now, if you have any kind, any modicum at all of conviction or belief that Jesus is who He said He was in the Scripture and you want to give your life to Him and ask Him to forgive you of your sin, you can do it right now and then take communion with the rest of us. Let's just all bow our heads for a minute. If you're in need of Christ tonight, if you've never received Jesus Christ personally as your Savior, 
you could open up your heart to him right now. Jesus is God, the son who came out of heaven to earth. He came with the distinct purpose of dying on a cross in order to pay the debt that you and I could never pay. So he lived the perfect life we could never live. And he died the death in our place so that we could have life if we believe in him. If you've never come to that place of authentic faith and you want to come to it right now, then you can pray right where you're seated. Right in your heart, you can say, Lord, I know I am a sinner. I've sinned. I admit that. Please forgive me. Moreover, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross, that he shed his blood for my sins. And he rose again from the dead for me. I ask your forgiveness. I turn from my sin. I leave it behind. I leave my past behind. And I receive you as my Savior and as my Lord. And I ask that you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit as I come to Christ, enabling me to live the life that is pleasing to you and to walk in victory as your disciple. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.